0: Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, in anticipation of its sequel coming soon, Adam and I are revisiting the 2013 Disney Juggernaut Frozen. Winter is coming, Adam. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas.
1: And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Matt, you live in Austin, Texas. I live in Philadelphia. I know winter is coming. It was cold here.
0: Yeah, it's going to be 80 degrees today here in Austin, so nobody wants to build a snowman here. (laughs) So today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how Frozen might help us think about life and the church and the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Frozen for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, November 17th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following.
0: So, Adam, Frozen. Frozen. Oh. Almost as long as there have been Disney animated movies, there have been Disney princesses, Snow White, Cinderella, Jasmine, Ariel, but in the annals of Disney box office success, none of them now compares with Elsa and Anna, the two sister protagonists of Frozen, Disney's 2013 reimagining of the Snow Queen. Elsa is born with magical ice powers, but after a childhood accident, her sister Anna is never allowed to know. Elsa walls herself up from relationship, they grow up, They come of age. Elsa comes onto the throne, but all of this hiding has a cost, and when Elsa's true powers are revealed to the world, she runs away, leaving the entire village frozen behind her as Anna takes off in pursuit. This movie became the highest-earning animated film of all time until the Lion King remake burst past it this past summer. I distinctly remember the Halloween after Frozen came out, when the streets of the little town I was living in in Virginia were just entirely taken over by little girls in Frozen costumes. It might as well have been a Disney on Ice meetup. But even though Anna gets the screen time in this movie, it was Elsa always who won the crowd, in no small part thanks to the anthem Let It Go, which you have all heard at least a thousand times. Adam, there was definitely a time in 2014 when Frozen was so thick on the ground that I never wanted to hear about this movie ever again. But five years later, I find myself eager for a revisit. So I'm wondering what you found. What was it like for you going back to Arendelle?
1: It's a good question. What, what was it like going back to Arendelle? I think I would probably respond by saying, did we ever really leave Arendelle? So I'm going to tell you two quick stories just um, about my experience with this movie, one uh, in 2014 and the other from this morning. So I um, in 2014 was part of this colloquium of other seminary professors and we would all gather and we would talk about teaching and different things like that. And then at night we would spend time hanging out. And uh, one night a karaoke machine sort of found its way into our midst and everybody was singing oh, karaoke things.
0: plus seminary is always a really good mix <sighs> yeah
1: yeah there might have been there might have been a few beers involved as well um, and so everyone's singing different songs and you know it's one of those things when you do karaoke you try and like surprise people with with songs that they may know but um, but that they don't know every word to and, and you can impress people because you do someone picked frozen and 90% of the group knew every single word to the uh, to let it go sure and They all stood up and they all sang it and they were um, And the diversity of the people who were there was pretty um, pretty impressive uh-huh. and they all knew the song and so It was a just a pop culture behemoth. It was a sort of monolith that was eating everything uh-huh. and and even this year, as people, as I was walking around my neighborhood trick-or-treating, I still saw Anna and Elsa costumes. Actually, quite a few of them. And um, then I watched this movie last night, preparing to have a conversation with you today. And I went to the dentist this morning to get my teeth cleaned. And there, in the dentist office, in while I'm looking at, uh, like while I'm sitting back, I sit up, and there is a bottle of Listerine emblazoned with olaf elsa and anna Like it never left the the sort of the way the staying power of this movie in our culture is pretty remarkable And I and I want to hear your thoughts about why that is but I think as I revisited it I'm still sort of struck by the fact that it's been five year or um, it's been six years since this movie came out because it still feels very present when I look around. And when like and just the merchandising alone seems so ubiquitous, not to mention the fact that it's strange in the sort of world of IP as king with respect to movies that they would wait six years to actually like put out a second movie to this because it seems like the most, the easiest decision in the world is to put a sequel to something that is this popular that can, um, that has had this much staying power. And so I, I think I didn't ever leave Arendelle. It's still there. It's still so present. And so as I watched this, I was kind of thinking, okay, so what's the staying staying power. And I think it, you know, I think it's these princesses. I think it's this relationship. I think it's the catchiness of the music. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it's quite well animated. It's really sure. accessible from sure. a, from an artistic standpoint. Um, but really, I mean, it's a journey of self discovery, and and really, the self discovery is that of um, of Anna, not Elsa. Though Elsa gets all of the top billing in this movie, Anna's the one who is actually on the journey, who experiences the most dramatic amount of change, and actually makes the consequential decisions, and so. I'm kind of drawn to her and her, her place in this story now as maybe the sort of the magnetic North of the story that keeps drawing people back. What about you? Why, why do you think this movie has such
0: staying power? Well, I think there are some industrial reasons for that. I mean, no, <laughs> n- nobody, the world. nobody is as good at cultivating the staying power of its franchises as Disney. And I, I, I think they have a, an endless capacity to to monetize and refresh their properties as soon as they sense the opportunity to do so well. So I'm not saying that Disney just can do this whenever it wants. Obviously it can't. It has any number of, of commercial failures in its past. But as soon as Anna and Elsa poked their way into the cultural consciousness, Disney was ready to milk that for all it was worth, and they've done so really well. I also think part of the reason that we're six years later is that it's not as simple as Disney just putting out a sequel. It's recognizing that there's a limited, to some degree, amount of cultural appetite for properties this large and Disney is is weighing frozen two up against all the other things in its portfolio, which include like major Marvel movies. Right. So I wonder whether frozen two is, I don't, I wonder whether there is a coincidence of frozen two showing up in a November where there is not a new MCU property showing up. And I think there's, you know, Disney owns so many of these tentpole things now that they have to play a kind of chess that we're not necessarily always tracking. I, I, I do agree with you that this is Anna's movie. Uh, I think it's designed to be Anna's movie. I, I, I think it becomes Elsa's movie in the cultural consciousness only because Let It Go is such an anthem. And, because it, and, and I, I, we clearly want to talk about why that is and, and what peeks out from there that grabs the imagination so much. But clearly, the screenplay is designed to be Anna's mm-hmm. screenplay. She's the protagonist of this movie, and she's the one that we follow, and and she's the one who who kind of um, is meant to pick up the the empathetic imagination of the audience. I, I'm not sure I agree with you that she changes, though. And this is where I, <laughs> this this is where I my frustration with this movie comes through a little bit is is in its final act um, mm-hmm. because I I am not convinced that um. I'm not convinced that this movie is has the dynamism in its characters that I want from uh, a, a really powerful story. Because it seems to me that throughout the tone-setting first act of this movie, Anna is over and over and over trying to show her love for her sister. She knocks on the door, do you want to build a snowman? She knocks on the door, do you want to build a snowman? Elsa flees away after everything breaks down, and Anna runs all the way to her new castle to knock on the door and effectively say, do you want to build a snowman? Anna is making these self-sacrificial acts of love pouring out to her sister throughout this movie. And then in the closing moments of it, (laughs) she makes a self-sacrificial act of love for her sister, which then turns the narrative around. But I have a hard time believing that that represents a character change or development. And so what I would much prefer, if I could magically rewrite this movie, I, I feel like that, that last beat needs to be inverted. I feel like uh-huh. Elsa needs to make the self-sacrificial act of love to save Anna and not the other way around. Otherwise, the through line is, if you just love this person more eventually they will open themselves to you. Which both practically and theologically I have a lot of struggle with.
1: Yeah, I think you're you're right, Matt. I agree with all of that because the the fact of the matter is is that that love is actually more complicated than this movie is is trying to convey. And Well, I do think that Anna like learns what love means in a slightly different way, sort of moving from this idea of infatuation to this idea of this sort of like um, deep sense of care and compassion to the needs of others. um, Elsa never actually has to atone for any of the terrible things that happen. And you get the sense that Elsa feels terrible about this and she's sort of like self segregated out of the Uh, Out of the culture in order to protect people that she ostensibly loves, but you never get the sense that she's actually like um, Trying to do something on behalf of others in a in a a real intangible way to make Mm -hmm. their lives better, you know, and By the end of the movie Elsa gets to be Queen again, but she's shown like no real sort of regal traits that you would expect in any type of fantasy genre, right? Like in, in, in the genre, you would be un, you would expect that the, that the king or the queen would have this sort of dignity or an integrity that would allow them to sort of finally be worthy of the title that's been given to them. And by the end of the movie, Anna is actually the one who's worthy of the queenship. She's the one who seems to understand what sacrifice means, how to lead, do different things like that, and what it, what it means to take control of a situation, how to be decisive. Um, Whereas Elsa doesn't. Elsa seems to me like fit to be like, I don't know, like war chief or something like that.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Like Yeah. And I, I I feel really terrible for Elsa. So when, when I talk about this movie, sometimes it sounds like I am trying to castigate her or denigrate her. And I don't mean it that way at all. I, I feel terrible for the situation that she's put in. I feel terrible for... The effect of what seems to me some really terrible parenting decisions that have gone. Oh, we gotta into talk about movie. that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So like she, she is stuck in this thing that she understandably does not know how to get out of, and and I, I, I don't for a moment want to sound like, oh my gosh, Elsa, you 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 just need to get your act together. Like what's your problem? But I think where it really hinges for me is just watching this pattern of Anna learning that what she really has to do is just say i love you better and more loudly over time that her love isn't um isn't sufficient until she sacrifices everything that she has up into her own life in order to make that love reality that feels like a big ask uh, and and i at, at the risk of of making too much of a stretch i mean i think about this in terms of from a theological point of view, I think about this in terms of our own atonement theology. Right. That what you see in Anna there in that sacrificial moment is very much a, a kind of cruciform sacrificial moment. I mean, she's not on a cross, but she does, you know, this is, the, this is the great love that she gives herself for the people that she loves, for the sister that she loves. Uh, and I. But, but I think what we have also seen in the history of interpretation of that atonement is people who are Um, In abusive relationships, um, people who are in uh, unequal relationships, people who are in subordinate positions, being told that uh, what they need to do um, is offer themselves sacrificially because that is what Christ demands of us as we love. So we get told that the the woman who was in an unsafe relationship or the child who was in an unsafe relationship here's your surprise through line from Minding the Gap to Frozen, right. right? Is is that what they are expected to do? It as a res, as a condition of the love that they claim to be in is to give themselves fully, even at the risk of their own health and safety, and that feels like damaging theology to me, and. That's why I want this to be on Elsa a little bit. I want it to be on her so that she has the responsibility of saying, no, actually, like real love um, wants to call out the best and the healthiest and the fullest in the person that you love. And that means calling Elsa and calling Anna both into something beautiful and flourishing and not just destructive.
1: Yeah, I agree. Real love is not coercive. Right. And and that's you get a sense that there is so coercion going on here. and It's not just Elsa. Actually, I think if I'm sort of nominating the worst culprits of coercion here in this movie, Elsa's fairly low on the list, in part because she has sort of operated outside of it. She is she has pulled herself so far away and she doesn't actually ask Anna to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. but there are other elements of coercion that are going in in this and I'm gonna name two that I find sort of it, kind of troubling The the first is the are these parents? Oh my gosh, what in the world? This is some really poor parenting that happens in frozen because at some point the parents realize that their daughter is uh, Magical, right? And they basically tell her um, Don't feel anything Like numb yourself to the world, right? So that you have like so that you don't actually ever use these magical powers that are a part of you and wall yourself into this sort of segregated um, environment whereby no one can be harmed by your terrible problem.
0: I mean, and so the, they frame
1: her magical powers always as a problem.
0: Yeah, clearly they should do what any other parent does in that situation, which is send their kid off to Professor Xavier's school for the gifted. I was thinking the exact same thing or Hogwarts
1: or something like right. that. Right. Like the the idea is that there is an impulse among these parents to like they say, what what is it like, can don't feel conceal. Yeah, that's like that is terrible parenting advice. No one should ever say that to yeah, their just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's wise. <laughs> and but then some, simultaneously. They have walled off the best friend of. Their other daughter, Anna. And never given her a clear and compelling reason as to why she can't actually play with her friend and sister any longer. And in so in some ways they have damaged Elsa and then they further traumatize their daughter by basically Removing her best friend from her life and creating a sort of deep sense of loss and so there is this there's this need that sort of drives the plot of the movie of Anna to sort of like Be friends with Elsa just to to recapture that that sort of relationship that they had and um, but I can't help but see that sort of the impetus of that coming from this initial decision by these parents oh, yeah. to like to, to to segregate the two daughters and to not like oh, and enabled and abetted by some strange trolls who decide to erase mm. Anna's memory? Right. What in the world is this decision? This is like, it's, a, it's a strange moment. <laughs> it's a weird this, beat. This is a weird beat of this movie where the, the troll is gonna say, look, you know, she can't know. That her sister has powers because what the brain is a weird thing. I mean, it's sort of like it's waved away and and then he he redoes her memories, which it is which is a, a deeply invasive thing to do. Um, that said, there is another culprit of coercion, I think, with respect to love in this movie. And it's the genre itself. It's just a sort of like oh, sure. princess industrial complex, which is um, the one of the. Characteristics of the princess is sort of like good pure holy to a fault, right and try as this movie might to try and um, To make Anna a sort of gangly and impulsive and any number of different things It never truly departs from the expectations of that character to be all things to all people and like and coerce her into the type of self sacrificial official um, moments that um that make her worthy of being a princess
0: one of the things i appreciate um joyfully about this movie is that we are so conditioned to the disney animated plot point of parents dying that they (laughs) they can do it with like (laughs) with two shots they have like there's a boat at sea in a storm which is actually a beautiful shot. But it, it would be beautiful. The animation is it was stunning. And then they cut to the like black curtain being lowered the sh- over, the shroud. over the portrait.
1: And then it's like <laughs> 10
0: years later. It's, like, we don't have to do any of this work, really, because you've seen this movie before in so many other ways. Like Obviously, the parents have to die for this to move forward. It could almost be like old silent movie interstitial... You know, little white font on black screen. Um, parents insert parents' death here. Fast forward, um, which is it's just uh, um, it's just a great moment of genre convention, and I I, I mean it uh, wholeheartedly. I love that that happens. I
1: I I it's so um, yeah, it is so industrious. It is economical <laughs> in the way that it, it like moves on with uh, with the story where everyone knows that like. You can't have people who know the explanation to everything. Yeah. In this. In yeah. This right, 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 right. Any longer. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, uh, other thing I love about this movie is I I genuinely wholeheartedly love Olaf. Uh, I, I love Olaf the snowman, and um I know that like the comic relief characters sometimes come under fire and things like this, and I know that you know for some folks Olaf is it feels like extraneous or kind of an odd fit in here. I, I love Olaf as the extraneous odd fit. And I love Olaf because he is, like, the... the. Um, I, I love that Olaf is created in the moment unconsciously of Elsa's psychological breakdown, right? right. Or her, her coming into being, whatever, however you want to talk about it. But it's during Let It Go, when she is building this whole palace for herself, that Olaf is also kind of called into being in the world, um, which seems like in in this moment where she is isolating herself to the fullest extent possible she is also um, complying with her sister's ancient request to build a snowman um and that right. this, this thing comes into the world it is almost like the pandora's box thing where all the bad stuff comes out and also the hope at the bottom which is this symbol of of that deep love that is still there and and starts to live and breathe and eventually has like saving impact on the plot of the movie. Uh, it also feels like this deeply revelatory thing that Olaf that that Elsa's deepest desire has created a snowman that dreams about summer like it's her <laughs> own manifestation of her sense of childhood and joy which also feels, unsustainable to her like it melts if it gets warm there's something just deeply yeah uh opening about that in terms of uh um getting a sense of what all is churning underneath her exterior that i love and and so it it doesn't feel to me just like an excuse to have comic relief it feels like a really important bit of uh personality and character work that i really appreciate
1: yeah it's like some sort of like Uh, you know, subconscious archetype that's sort of come to life and in the life of the of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, additionally I I the I actually do like some of the themes of this movie and I think that they're pretty well wrought, especially the theme of doors and the sort of opening and closing doors and what that means. I think that's actually pretty sophisticated for a movie like this and how how there are these doors that people, um, that they constantly talk about and I mean they show up in the songs a lot you know like uh door and any more are rhymed in like five different songs right um but this idea that like initially with Anna this like this love of this um of this prince oh has opened up this new world to her and she can't actually tell the difference between what freedom looks like outside the castle walls because she's essentially uh, not been outside the castle in 15 years i'm not exactly sure how that works right um, yeah Uh, But she's she's this newfound freedom and that newfound freedom also attaches um, to your freedom to choose and to couple and to figure out what you're going who who you want to be with and it's hard to tell the difference between and so love opens this door, but that that very literal door of her like walking out into the world also comes with it all of this danger that she can't foresee because she's been indoors not to mention the fact that she can't like she she never gets to play with her sister because her sister's on the other side of a door and then finally like this, this idea that that Elsa can just close the door on things is undermined by Olaf in the same way that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Right. Which is like try as she might to sort of like wall off all of those previous, that previous life, that previous role, those expectations of what she's that she's that she's failed to live up to and feels a deep amount of shame about. Um, And whether it's being a queen or whether it's being a sister she She tries to close that door and yet she can't fully close it because this Strange snowman is walking through it and that strange snowman ultimately has a role In helping her finally fully open a door to the love of somebody else Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty interesting. I, I mean, it's pretty I think complicated and sophisticated storytelling at the end of it and I and I like tracing that that, that motif and that theme through the movie, and I think they do a good job with it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, and I do think there's some real complexity here that I really quite appreciate, even as much as I kind of don't appreciate some of the ways in which it resolves. But, you know, this movie is a, is, is a whole piece, and also it is one anthem. It is this song, Let It Go, that became, like, the earworm for two years after this movie came out. And and clearly Elsa's moment of singing Let It Go is one of the things that has kind of grabbed the imagination of people for this movie. And I, I'm wondering specifically, let's just talk about that song and that moment. Yeah. Uh, what, what was it like for you to go back to, to that piece and watch that scene play out?
1: You know, I think when you watch it in the context of the movie, it takes on a a different tone than if you watch it like on YouTube over and over while your kid likes to sing it or something like that. And there are, you know, there are now frozen sing-alongs where like there's like a bouncing Olaf head that like tells you which word to sing at different at at the right time. And when you sing it that independent of the movie, it feels like this song of empowerment, a a song of sort of like finally – getting a chance to be who you really are, who you really are. And, um, you sort of throw off the shackles of the world and all of the constrictions that have been put on you so that you can, can finally shine in the way that you want to shine. You can dress in the way that you want to dress and you can depart from the roles that have been given to you. And so that you can choose your own role. Um, but when you watch the movie, it, it does, it feels different. And I have to say, it feels like, um, as Elsa sort of retreats from the world, you get the sense that she's re- she's choosing the solitary life and it becomes very cold. And, um, and it, you get a sense that this is actually the sort of scared retort to, uh, what is actually a cold world and what is actually a very difficult set of circumstances that she has been born into. And, that she hasn't been helped with respect to all of what she will need in order to meet the world as a leader. And so I, I felt some degree of compassion as someone who has a leadership position somewhere. And like that deep desire to sort of like, say like, I'm gonna let all this go. I'm going to go be myself. The desert fathers had it right. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it all go. Um, because it's really hard and I don't know, and I don't feel totally adequate all the time. And so I can just go and be who I am and do the things that I want to do. And in that way, it feels really sort of immature and naive. And that was that was my reading this this go around. What
0: about you? I mean, that's interesting. I mean, you do have a sense of uh, she replaces one palace with another, right? She inherits this this palace that seems to be not falling on disrepair, but certainly not being used. Uh, I mean, we get all these big shots of the emptiness of these ballrooms and Anna talking about how, what's the point of having a ballroom if you never have a ball. Uh, and there's something deeply oppressive about the, the, the palace there that these sisters inherit, that they're not really able to fully thrive in, Um uh, and then for elsa to run away from that and and in some ways recreate it obviously it's not recreated in community it is much more kind of fortress of solitude ish um, yeah out out in the 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 mountaintop but she doesn't retreat to a hut or um, (laughs) or a tropical (laughs) island she 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 makes the same thing again which is a, a, a i'm not sure what to make of that i mean i right um I see some of it. Uh, I see some of it in transitions in the church of of folks who have had it up to here with the institutional church, and so they want to burn it down and go build something else. And what they end up building looks inevitably almost entirely <laughs> like the thing that they left. So there's a little bit I of think my like, few think Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. There's a little. There's a little bit of my like uh, kind of modern church eye rolling that shows up in the way that I read that, um, but. Uh, um, but i think taking an abstract from the movie kind of extracted from it uh to sing it at the top of your lungs at a karaoke bar with a bunch of theologians i mean that that just feels like an anthem of of empowerment to me when i hear let it go i am not so much hearing like drop all the weight that you're carrying around as i'm hearing like show off what you can do um yeah uh, let all of the inhibitions go. Um, let the, and, and let those, um, the way that you are called to be kind of let it out, let it forth into the world. There's something deeply vocationally affirmative about this that I think is really critical. And I think it's part of what, um, why I I would love for, um, the, the kids in my church and the kids in my house to be built in as the top of their lungs, because it feels like something honest and gripping about just being who you're called to be and not letting the crap around you um, determine that.
1: I think that's a really important idea, Matt. It reminds me of Kennedy's book, Practicing Passion. Did you read that? Mm-mm. It's um, it's a it's an incredible book about youth ministry and how to do youth ministry. And, um, one of the central ideas is that young people, what are the great gifts that they have is their passion. Is the sort of sets of emotions by which they engage the world and that in so much of our ministries We actually we try and sort of ask them to leave that at the door and by doing so We limit the power that they bring into the church. Yeah, because we're a little afraid of it We we don't know how it's going to be used. We don't know how they We're we're aware that they're not very good at directing it and in kind Basic argument is like no that is their superpower That is the thing that they bring into the church that actually has the power to sort of ignite ideas and in things in the uh in the youth group that to to sort of uh cultivate that passion is um the work of the church and one of the central works of youth ministry
0: yeah that and that feels exactly on point with where i think let it go has the most positive traction for me uh, and and why i'd you know be thrilled for the Frozen-themed VBS that almost certainly exists out there and
1: may have <laughs> almost certainly exists.
0: Yeah, <laughs> probably not in a copyright form, but right. you know, this is the, where I would normally ask you, like, would you use this movie? But in this case, it's not hypothetical. Like, <laughs> many, many churches have used this movie for precisely that. Uh, and... Or the strange knockout, like knockoff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely version
1: of it, like Snowland, <laughs> like uh make you make snowman yeah sacrifice the, uh, the, your sister like the, jesus
0: yeah the cokesbury vbs theme for next year is i think it's kings of the north and it is like a very <laughs> blatant game of thrones themed vbs curriculum
1: yeah there was another one this that was very lion king this last uh this last year too so i yeah this exists i mean i don't think we'd have to work hard to find it yeah All right, Matt. I think that's a good place to move on to the lectionary passage. But before we do, we want to say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great things that they're doing. In their most recent issue, Shelley Rambo, who is a, a wonderful scholar from Boston University, just published a piece on trauma studies and how Those uh, that particular field is influencing theology and practice really interesting stuff I think she's a wonderful and really intriguing scholar, and I encourage you to go and read that Is she working on
0: the deep trauma of Anna and Elsa and the unresolved childhood bad parenting? Stuff that I hope so. Yeah, I hope somebody should if you
1: are listening to this podcast and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit slash podcast offer.
0: Also, want to bring you this from our friends at Westminster John Knox. Are you ready for Advent? Refresh your preaching with Connections, which Westminster John Knox presents Connections, a lectionary commentary for preaching and worship. This nine-volume series provides new resources to help preachers achieve the goal of connecting congregations to Scripture. Connections Year A, Volume 1, covers Advent through Epiphany and is available right now. So visit wjkbooks.com connections to learn more. All right, Adam, Matt, like, did you write for that one? I did write for that. I've written for that series, but I forget which volumes my stuff is in. So, But okay. I, I believe it is in this one because I think I wrote on some Advent epistles.
1: All right, well, go pick it up.
0: Matt wrote it. Yeah, so there's a, there's a chance there's stuff from me in there. So you know, pick. <laughs> you'll see. We'll all find out together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Adam. Let's move on to preaching. This segment is called preaching to the choir. Looking at the lectionary passages from November seventeenth, we have Isaiah's heavenly vision in sixty five. We have Psalm ninety eight, which is a psalm of praise. We have Second Thessalonians and the exhortation to work for your bread. And finally, the gospel passage is from the apocalyptic portion of Luke, where Jesus tells his disciples that everyone will hate them. Adam, <laughs> as you look at these passages, what stands out to you?
1: So that that Isaiah 65 passage is so evocative and such a treasure within yeah. the scripture, um, and I, I love reading it. And um, If only because it's it's such a clear vision and this idea of this new Jerusalem, this new sort of like heavenly city that is coming, that is being brought about and and what the terms of living in that city um, are are going to be. And I as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think like about Anna's own strange vision of like a new city. Right. So she she builds her own castle. She gets to live in that castle. And um, and. In watching that and reading Isaiah 65, I was reminded of, of all of the historical New Jerusalems that have been made mm-hmm. at some point or another, which, are the, which is the name that is given to these new societies, these new cities, these new communities that are designed to live into some v- idea of this vision from both Isaiah 65 but from other portions of Scripture as well um, that tries to get it right that tries to do it differently than the world around them. And and what connects those utopian visions to Anna's, I mean, to Elsa's utopian vision, is this impulse to set yourself apart, um, to retreat from the world, to say that the only way that you can be so thoroughly and totally yourself is if you are segregated from the wider world. Um, Elsa doesn't really wanna be queen. Um, But yet she wants to rule. I mean, I think your point is a good one earlier where you say like she doesn't go to live in a monastic hut She builds another palace Which gives her some sense of stature gives her some sense of purpose Um, When we build these new Jerusalems, they're inevitably flawed Because ultimately they're built in our image. They're built with our particular um, trauma in our background with our particular baggage and try as we might to build some brand new world that's going to uh, allow us to be fully our, ourselves and to, be, um, to have the sort of integrity to live into the identity that we believe God calling, is calling us to be, we, we don't actually ever succeed. Um, because ultimately we build New Jerusalems for our needs. And when you read Isaiah 65, while wow, there are lots of amazing things that, that we get to participate in there this is not ultimately a city that we build. This is the city that God builds
0: mm-hmm.
1: and God has a sort of fundamentally different way of thinking about this because ultimately we're not the ones ruling when we get to go and be a part of this new city. We are subjects just like everybody else. In fact, there is only one ruler in this city and the fact that that ruler has built this city and now rules it with, um, a sort of sense of justice and compassion. Um, where there isn't pain, but there there is consequence. Um, there, uh, there is some measure of autonomy. You get to plant your own vineyard. You get to eat your own fruit. Um, Mm -hmm. but yet you have to live in community. It's a, it's a wonderfully rich text to kind of sort of play around with. Like what exactly are we being called to today and how do we try and build towards that new understanding of how to operate in community without also trying to, um, build it in our own image
0: yeah yeah i love this text and it's it's such a beautiful cornerstone uh i i'm still thinking about they shall not build it another inhabit uh and that part of the part of the trouble in the opening of frozen is that these daughters these sisters have inherited a castle that they didn't build Uh, Mm. and and it's not it's like it is oppressive to them because they don't know how to make it theirs and they haven't been given the freedom to do that and so it um, I wonder if that helped me think about this particular line that it's not just it's it's not just unjust to the builders for somebody else to come along and steal their house it is also unjust and unfair to someone who, comes up in a house they didn't build in the first place um, to have to live in it without some sense of being allowed to make it their own um, which
1: actually like sort of connects to the Thessalonian passage a little bit right yeah, which yeah. is like you have to have some ownership of this and into and to, and to have some measure of true ownership and true care you have to you have to have worked for it yeah and and the problem with inheritance is that um, you don't work for it
0: yeah. I have broader questions about the economy of Arendelle and like (laughs) what their chief export is ice. Their chief export is ice. The whole movie hinges on like whether or not we're going to sign a trade deal with Weaselton, which like gets real (laughs) close to being like Phantom Menace level Imperial tax policy. (laughs) But regardless, Uh, I want to lift up Psalm 98. I think this is, there's, there's some, uh, there's some "Let It Go" theology happening here in Psalm 98, where it's a psalm of praise. Uh, it says, "Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills sing together for joy." Uh, the, the the way that the um, English translates this this imperative with the "let." let this thing happen, let the floods clap their hands, um, is to say these pieces of God's creation want to do this thing. It is in their nature to roar. It is in the, the nature of the hills to sing together. It is in the nature of the floods to clap their hands. So what praise is, is a- a- allowing um, these pieces of creation to do the thing for which they were created. Uh, and I think w- one of the pieces that sh- that sticks from Let It Go is, as we've already said, that kind of vocational affirmation that this having magicalized powers is w- something that Anna was created for. And so allowing her to live into that, calling us into worship and praise is calling something in us that is part of what we were created to do. So it is not it should not be a... Um, a new skill or an imposed skill or uh or or an imposed gift even but rather an opening up of something that is already deeply set um and that's i think psalm 98 and let it go work together actually pretty well
1: i mean also and we haven't we haven't mentioned Kristoff yet in this uh in this podcast no it's true that he 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 sort of voices his reindeer sven Regularly, which right. is this strange little sort of character decision yes. that they've made that I don't quite understand But I get the sense that what he's voicing on Sven's behalf is both a sort of an, a way to, for him to have some justification Where someone agrees with him, but I never get the, Sven, the sense that Sven actually is mad that he's voicing <laughs> He's voicing his thoughts ideas And I just wonder, like Psalm 98, along with so many of these other praise songs, right? Like they're able, there's a sense that you're able to sort of like hear the praise of the floods and they clap their hands that like, that there are ways of sort of like interpreting the world that um, are necessary in order for you to sort of fully understand and fully realize the sort of true breadth of praise that's happening all around us. And, And I can't help but think about Christoph, who sort of like is... Is regularly interpreting for a reindeer yeah Um, and that you know that comes from a long a lifelong relationship with this this animal so that he feels like he's in it and and is Psalm 98 also a sort of call for us to have these lifelong relationships with the hills so that we can hear their song
0: yeah beautiful
1: All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week?
0: Uh, Deadspin died. Oh, it made me sad. Really sad. Um, it's a really fascinating story over the last week. Um, the Deadspin, the uh, sports blog that historically was with within the Gawker media empire um, before Peter Thiel sued Gawker out of existence, Um and then Deadspin has been passed around to multiple ownership groups over the past couple of years. Uh, it's, it's been a sports blog that has been up and running since 2005. Uh, I was tracking and commenting on that site in the first weeks of its existence. Uh, and so I feel like as a part of my adulthood that dies with it, although I haven't been active on there for years. Yeah. Uh, but it, there's something deeply revelatory about the kind of modern media landscape that's happening and watching deadspin die and i I surely encourage you all to go and and read and track uh with it's basically the story of private equity coming and trying to fix something that wasn't broken so i i want to send you all to a piece called the adults in the room that was written by their previous editor megan greenwell before she left earlier in the summer uh, which is which lays out, and it's still live on Deadspin, which is also kind of remarkable to me, um, but it lays out that that this history where it that says, look, you would be willing to believe a version of this where the Deadspin bloggers and staff were all artists and craftsmen who didn't care about money. And then the ownership came in and said, no, you have to be profitable. And we didn't want to because we were craftsmen and then everything broke down. And that's not at all what happened. The, the reality is that all of these writers and staff were absolutely committed to running a profitable site. And the problem was that ownership came in and had too much ego to let the staff actually do the things that they knew how to do. Uh, and it's a really beautiful and kind of haunting uh, post-mortem on mm-hmm what has happened here that i think is is important for how we think about uh, what leadership looks like how we think about what generational change in leadership looks like and how we think about sort of um the narratives of industrial change look like as the church goes through its own period of industrial change so i i highly recommend the adults in the room she take it's taken from a the, the title comes from a quote from succession on HBO, but uh, the the it works really really well And so we'll put a link up to that.
1: Yeah, it's really good. I, I read it when it first was posted and You know, I think as I as I think about Deadspin and it's its own legacy. It's it's also seems to be a canary in the coal mine for so much of media Right, right which is sure. the idea that like our media companies going to be held to the same standard as other uh, Other multinational companies that are supposed to sort of make a profit at all costs Or is there some such a thing with respect to a media company where? profitable but not exponentially so is actually in line with the mission of the the entity and of the property and um, and the, the sort of Strange economy that we live in that is that seems to be running at a pace. That's unsustainable for for things like media and other and other mm, particular industries. This is a, a really good example of how uh, Leadership and media culture and profitability are all sort of like swirling in some very complicated mess so yeah. um, Here's my post Um by the time this podcast is up, we will have uh, one, if not two, his Dark Materials episodes. If you're not familiar with his Dark Materials, it is the um, the trilogy of books written by Philip Pullman. Uh, it's within Christian circles, it is um, a, something of a um, something of a contested set of stories. Um, yeah, the Vatican is. has famously hated it. Um, and sees it as sort of like atheist propaganda. Um, it has a very, very deep anti authoritarian streak. So, I mean, considering the long history of authoritarian actions within the church, you know, it's going to be hard not to see the church as a part of the story, though it is. Um, and I don't think it's, it's that veiled ultimately. And while I've seen some people say, this is not really about the church, this is about authoritarian structures. Um, it's it's telling that Pil- that Pullman picks a basically a religious entity as The authoritarian structure and we can't dismiss that that said his critiques of that structure are trenchant um, In addition to that he tells a sort of ripping yarn that is Really interesting and has some interesting things to say about development about sexuality about self-consciousness and um, and I, I quite love these books. I've just started reading the the second trilogy that he's in the p- process of writing called uh, the Trilogy of Dust. Um, famously, they tried to make a movie, um, The Golden Compass, to capitalize on these books, and it failed. And it failed for a variety of reasons. Um, one is the movie wasn't that good, though it had a lot of star power, Nicole Kidman, Daniel Craig, among others. Um, but number two, it it didn't fully buy into the Pullmanness of it, which is the movies are pretty. I mean, the story is pretty dark. Mm-hmm. It is, um, the, it is a, the world is very threatening and trying to soften that gets away from, um, what is the sort of main tension of the story and the thing that brings you back, right? Cause there is, there's is some real danger in the story. Um, not to mention a fully realized world with all of these in in the way that a fully realized universe operates um I'm super excited for this. I hope it works I think that because the the filmmakers have been giving are, are doing this episodically and they've been given a lot of leeway to build the universe That it has a lot of potential to work um But more than that, I just I like the idea that his dark materials is back in the conversation to continue to have a conversation around these books because I, I think they deserve it I actually watched the voyage of the Don Treder movie on Sunday with my kid, which Why? is a very flawed and strange movie and it and it takes the best part of that story, which I also quite love um, and and pulls it out um, but His dark materials has always been seen like it or not um, intentionally or not as a sort of response to the Narnia tales mm-hmm. um, and I Encourage people to to watch it as such because I think that there is What Pullman pulls out is some of the shadow side that that Lewis is unwilling to recognize in the world sometimes and as much as Lewis wants to trade in ideas of, of danger and evil um, he does not ultimately get to how that operates systemically in the world and what that does to communities and people in the way that pullman does so i have a lot to say about his dark materials i really love it um but i commend it to people to try and give it a shot if they have hbo and um and you know reach out if they
0: have any ideas that's what i got you think it's going to work uh i hope so what are they doing are they doing a a season on the first book or is it yeah. the whole series eight episodes for the eight first episodes book. for golden compass
1: yeah or northern lights is how it was first published yeah so okay. and then uh the subtle knife is the second one and the amber spyglass is the third so it'll be like three seasons three basically seasons. yeah i mean depending on how it does and depending on the success of the second tri- the second trilogy i suspect that they're hoping that the property will in- will continue to pay off yeah. but it's done in conjunction with the bbc which um has pretty exacting standards too so that that gives me hope too
0: it's so hard to know because you know we're in such a streaming uh we're in such a streaming ecosystem apocalypse right now there's so <laughs> many options and there's so much money behind them that right. it's like the old rules that said look if a network is spending this kind of capital on something they must have something decent cooked up and i don't know that that's true any longer i sort of have some trust for hbo for this but nonetheless there is an a staggering number of very expensive and not that great television shows out there right now and so i it just makes me wary Um, but i hope it works for sure yeah have you signed up for disney plus not yet i'm i will almost certainly get suckered into it at some point i i'm I'm already (laughs) out and i'm
1: ready to give them my money
0: when they figure out what to do with the muppets i'm in so that's that Mm -hmm. that's you know i love the muppets and when they figure out the muppets i'm in i'll probably in before that but that's well
1: i mean i'm in uh, the star wars i'm in i don't know i mean the mandalorian reviews (laughs) like i'm gonna i'm gonna buy it so uh all right, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends of the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Fixer Upper. And big thanks to our friend Derek Weston for all his help editing this show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.